Section 7 of Lectures on Tropical Diseases by Sir Patrick Manson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 Trypanosomiasis and Sleeping Sickness. Some years ago, it might have been said, having regard especially to the organisms alluded to in the foregoing lectures, that our knowledge of tropical disease germs, particularly the most important of these, that of malaria, of their physical characters, of the way they leave the human body and the way they re-enter the human body was fairly complete. Here and there, no doubt, there were important gaps, but the leading facts, especially those having a practical bearing, that is, having a bearing on treatment and prophylaxis, had been definitely settled. A sort of completeness seemed to have been attained, but within the last three or four years any hope of finality that formerly might have been cherished has been rudely upset, and instead of being able to lie back and fold our hands with some measure of satisfaction in completed work, we have once more to take to our laboratories and to our microscopes. Two new diseases, new of course only in the sense of being newly discovered, classifiable as tropical, have lately been sprung upon us. I allude to trypanosomiasis and to tropical febrile splenomegaly, or, as it is now generally called, cala azar, and their associated conditions. Besides these absolutely new diseases, important and revolutionary knowledge has been acquired in connection with an old and long-known disease, especially important to America. I allude to yellow fever. In this and my next lecture, I propose to deal with trypanosomiasis and cala azar, more particularly from the standpoint of etiology. In May of 1901, Dr. Ford, a colonial surgeon in the River Gambia colony in West Africa, was puzzled about the case of an Englishman who suffered from an irregular chronic fever supposed to be malarial. Quinine had failed. To help to clear up diagnosis, Dr. Ford examined the patient's blood with the microscope and therein came across a very minute, wriggling organism, the nature of which he failed to recognize. The patient returned to England. After six months' furlough, he again went back to the Gambia, still suffering from time to time from relapses of his old fever. Still puzzled about the case, and especially about the organisms found in the blood, which he concluded had something to do with the symptoms, Dr. Ford called to his assistance the late Dr. Dutton, then engaged on malarial work in the colony. Dr. Dutton at once recognized the nature of the little wriggling bodies, and also the importance of the discovery. Although a French observer, Nephew, had probably seen the same or a similar parasite in man some ten years previously, this was the first occasion on which it was definitely recognized that man was liable to infection by trypanosomes. For such was the nature of the parasite Dr. Ford had found in his patient's blood. I have no intention of giving a detailed description of this class of parasite, such can be found in books on natural history. Suffice it to say that the trypanosomes are minute protozoal organisms shaped like an elongated spindle with a long lash or flagellum at one end and a delicate fin-like swimming membrane running from the attachment of the flagellum to the other end of the spindle. For the most part, 
they are about the length exclusive of the flagellum of the diameter of a blood corpuscle. They swim very actively in the blood plasma with a wriggling screw-like movement, the flagellum being usually in front. Little is known of their life history further than that they multiply in the blood by longitudinal division, and that some of them are conveyed from vertebrate host to vertebrate host by biting insects. We know little of their sexual reproduction. The little we do know is in great measure conjectural. Some of them are pathogenic, others, as for example that of the rat T. Luisi, are not. To return to the patient, he was sent home to England where Dr. Dutton made a careful study of the parasite and the associated clinical phenomena. Dr. Dutton named the parasite Trypanosoma gambiense and the disease Trypanosomiasis. I had an opportunity of seeing this case in Liverpool in August of 1902. The clinical tableau was so striking that one could not but wonder how it was that its special nature had not been appreciated and its special cause suspected if not recognized long ago. The patient told a story of long-standing chronic irregular fever with occasional intervals of complete apyrexia. The temperature chart during the febrile periods showed the usual evening rise to 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 101 degrees Fahrenheit, occasionally higher, and the morning dropped to normal or subnormal. The pulse was rapid and feeble, and there was complaint of intense muscular weakness, of palpitations, and of breathlessness. On stripping the patient for examination, what struck me most were the great patches of ill-defined erythema irregularly distributed over limbs and trunk. Some of the patches had a distinctly ringed appearance and may have been seven or eight inches in diameter. Other patches, some as large as the palm of the hand, were not circinate, being simply uniform blotches of congestion. In neither rings nor patches were the margins of the erythema abruptly defined. They shaded off gradually into normal skin. Here and there, but particularly in the area of the erythematous patches, there was an ill-defined edema best recognized if viewed from a distance. The face was puffy. The spleen was enlarged. The patient lived for some months longer and ultimately died of pneumonia. Two months after, through Dr. Dutton's courtesy, I had seen this patient, I was consulted in October 1902 about a case of chronic fever which for long had been supposed to be malarial. The patient, a lady, had lived for some time on the upper Congo. The story she gave was that up to the autumn of 1901, although she might have had one or two mild attacks of malarial fever, which yielded readily to quinine, she had enjoyed fair health. On August 14th of that year, she was bitten on the leg by some animal believed to be a fly. Although at first the part became very painful and swollen, under soothing treatment, the local irritation slowly subsided. A fortnight later, she had the first of a long series of febrile attacks, which came and went, uninfluenced by quinine, until her death two years and three months after the date of the bite to which she attributed her illness. When I first saw her in October 1902, fourteen months after the onset of the disease, 
she was, though weak, able to get about a little. Her spleen was very much enlarged, her face was puffy, and scattered over her limbs and trunk, I recognized the same type of erythema I had seen in Ford and Dutton's case. Suspecting the nature of the disease, I sent her to hospital where her symptoms, and more especially her blood, could be closely studied. Many microscopical examinations of the latter were made, but beyond a marked large mononuclear leukocytosis, at first nothing peculiar was discovered. After a week, Dr. Daniels encountered a solitary but unmistakable trypanosome, and subsequently, probably in consequence of greater familiarity with the technique, we could nearly always find similar parasites in suitably prepared blood films. Occasionally, none could be found. Generally, two or three were present in every film, occasionally as many as seven or eight. Some years before this, I had seen another case with symptoms exactly similar to the foregoing, namely recurring febrile attacks, erythema multiforme, enlargement of the spleen, weakness. The patient was a lady missionary. She too had resided on the Congo, and she too, prior to the oncoming of her symptoms, had been bitten on the leg by some poisonous insect. She had returned to the Congo. I wrote for information about her and was told that her symptoms continued, and that Dr. Burden had found the trypanosome in her blood. Since that time, other and similar cases have been met with in Europeans in or from tropical Africa, so that now it may be definitely concluded that the symptom syndrome of 1. Chronic irregular fever, 2. Erythema in rings, patches, or rubioloid spots, 3. Local edema, 4. Tachycardia, 5. Muscular weakness, 6. Enlargement of the spleen, 7. Anemia, 8. Enlargement of lymphatic glands. Occurring in a patient from tropical Africa practically means infection with trypanosoma gambiense. For upwards of a century, students of tropical pathology have puzzled over a peculiar and very striking African disease somewhat inaccurately described by its popular name, the sleeping sickness. Its weirdness and dreadful fatality have gained for it a place not in medical literature only, but also in general literature. The mystery of its origin, its slow but sure advance, the prolonged life in death that often characterizes its terminal phases, and its inevitable issue have appealed to the imagination of the novelist, who more than once has brought it on his mimic stage, draping it, perhaps, as the fitting nemesis of evil-doing. The leading features of this strange sickness are such as might be produced by a chronic meningoencephalitis, low irregular febrile disturbance, headache, lassitude, deepening into profound physical and mental lethargy, muscular tremor, spasm, paresis, sopor, ultimately wasting, bed sores, and death by epileptiform seizure or by exhaustion or by some intercurrent infection. In every case, the lymphatic glands, especially the cervical, are enlarged, though it may be but slightly. In many cases, paritis is marked. In all, lethargy is the dominating feature. In some respects, this disease, which runs its course in from three months to three years, 
from the oncoming of decided symptoms resembles the general paralysis of the insane. It differs from this, however, in the absence, as a rule, of the peculiar psychical phenomena of that disease. There are exceptions, but generally, though, the mental faculties in sleeping sickness are dull and slow-acting, the patient has no mania, no delusions, no optimism. So far is the last from being the case that he is painfully aware of his condition and of the miserable fate in store for him, and he looks as if he knew it. Post-mortem, the naked eye evidences of intracranial disease are not always or even usually very marked. Milkiness of the meninges, sometimes a little inflammatory effusion and congestion of the pia mater and arachnoid may be seen. Rarely are any gross inflammatory lesions discovered. But on microscopical examination, as was first pointed out by a distinguished British pathologist, Dr. F. Mott, definite evidence of a universal meningoencephalitis in the form of a small-cell perivascular infiltration can readily be recognized. Dr. Mott has further shown that this condition is not confined to the brain and cord, but may be present throughout the entire body and in every tissue in which lymphatics occur. This discovery fully explains the symptoms of the disease. Until recently, sleeping sickness was confined so far as we knew and know to the west of tropical Africa, from Senegambia to Benguela. It occurred here and there among the Negro tribes, for the most part in those a little back from the coast. In the endemic districts, it would from time to time break out epidemically, attacking and almost depopulating the villages. In other instances, its occurrence was more sporadic. In the days of the slave trade, many poor wretches died of sleeping sickness during the voyage across the Atlantic. Nor were the slaves safe after landing in America or in the West Indies. Months, sometimes years afterwards, and after a long spell of apparent good health, sleeping sickness would develop in some of the plantation hands and run its usual fatal course. But, and this is a remarkable and significant circumstance, the disease never spread to those Negroes who had been born in America or the West Indies and who had never been to Africa. It was absolutely confined to Negroes who had come from Africa. Manifestly, the Negro brought the germ or cause with him. Manifestly, this germ could remain latent in the body for a period of years, and seeing that the disease was not communicated to his fellow slaves, the America or West India-born Negroes, it is equally manifest that the transmitting agency, whatever it might be, was either not present or not effective in America. Not long after the opening up of the interior of the dark continent, and apparently in consequence of the resulting increased intercommunication, sleeping sickness began to extend its endemic area, especially so in the direction of the upper Congo basin and toward the Portuguese colonies to the south of the Congo. Gradually it crept up the great river until it got as far as Stanley Falls, and now the riverine villages over a large part of the Congo Free State, villages in which the disease was formerly unknown, are only too familiar with this terrible scourge. 
Unfortunately, the disease has not been contented to confine itself to West Africa. Sometime about the end of the century it jumped the watershed and appeared for the first time on the eastern side of the continent in the upper part of the Nile Valley. Gradually it has spread and is now thoroughly established in Uganda and some neighboring countries and threatens to move down the Nile and invade the Egyptian Sudan. This is a serious matter for tropical Africa and possibly for tropical Asia, for it is difficult to say how far the area will extend. We know that in those regions to which it has already extended, the mortality has been frightful. All along the shores of the northern half of Victoria Nyanza and in the neighboring islands, it is raging at the present moment. In parts, the country has been depopulated. It is estimated that in Uganda and Buzoga alone, 40,000 have died of sleeping sickness within the last few years, and the mortality is still going on. Becoming alarmed at the rapid progress and the appalling ravages of the disease, and apprehensive about Egypt and possibly India, the British government in June of 1902 got the Royal Society to send commissioners to Uganda to investigate, and if possible, to find out the cause of sleeping sickness, with the view of instituting measures to stay its spread. Prior to the labors of this commission, many ideas, some of them manifestly untenable, had been advanced as to the cause of the disease. Only two of these hypotheses had for their basis any considerable body of fact, or could be taken at all seriously. One of these suggested that a nematode, Filaria perstans, was the cause, the other that a certain micrococcus discovered by the members of a Portuguese commission, of which Battencourt was the leader, was the responsible agent. Filaria perstans was discovered in 1891. It was first recognized in the blood of a negro dying from sleeping sickness in a London hospital, the concurrence of a strange parasite and a strange disease naturally suggested a connection between them. When subsequently blood films sent from Africa from a considerable number of cases of the same disease were found in practically every instance to harbor the same parasite, the idea that there was such a connection was strengthened. Later still, two Negroes suffering from sleeping sickness were brought to London for purposes of study. In both of them, Filaria perstans was found in abundance. The evidence, then, was very strong for a cause-and-effect relationship between parasite and disease, more especially as, so far as inquiry had at that time extended, the geographical range of parasite and disease seemed to coincide, and as such a relationship would explain the long incubation of the disease and its non-communicability outside Africa. On extending the inquiry to the general population of certain places where sleeping sickness was prevalent, it was found that a large proportion of the native Negroes, whilst showing no sign whatever of being affected with sleeping sickness, nevertheless harbored filaria perstans. The same parasite was also found among tribes unaffected with sleeping sickness or only rarely affected with sleeping sickness. Moreover, it was found in America in British Demerara in about 60% of the native Indians of the back country, among whom sleeping sickness was not at that time definitely known to be present or absent. 
So far, it has never been found in natives of East Africa. Co-endemnicity of disease and parasite, therefore, could not be said to be absolute. Soon after, it became known that sleeping sickness had appeared in Uganda. Filaria perstans was sought for in the blood of the sufferers, and sure enough was discovered in nearly every instance. It was also found in the blood of a large proportion of the general population. Accordingly, the commissioners sent by the Royal Society were instructed to study this question of the relationship of filaria perstans to sleeping sickness. At the commencement of their work, they naturally had their attention called to the cases occurring in the neighborhood of their laboratory and hospital at Entebbe, the seat of government in Uganda. Here they found filaria perstans in about 90% of the cases examined, a percentage of incidence considerably higher than that obtained in the general population. But when they proceeded to investigate the blood of natives in other and neighboring districts, they found large areas in which sleeping sickness was prevalent, but in which filaria perstans was absent, and conversely other districts in which filaria perstans abounded, but in which sleeping sickness was absent. Manifestly, therefore, filaria perstans has nothing to do with sleeping sickness. When the two are present in the same individual, the association is merely a matter of concurrence. The Portuguese commission referred to had found a caucus with special cultural characteristics in a large proportion of their cases. They found it in the brain and meninges associated generally with inflammatory exudate, and they regarded it as the specific germ of the disease. One of the British commissioners, Castellani, found the same or a similar micrococcus in a large proportion of his cases so frequently that at one time he too regarded the bacterium as the germ cause of sleeping sickness. Later, however, on finding a trypanosome in the centrifuged cerebral spinal fluid of one, and subsequently in others of his cases, as well as in the blood, he changed his mind and put forward the trypanosome as the true cause, the coccus being regarded merely as a terminal epiphenomenon. Colonel Bruce and subsequent commissioners confirmed and extended Castellani's discovery, and now we know that a trypanosome resembling, if not identical with Trypanosoma gambiense, has been found in the blood, in the cerebral, spinal, and other serous fluids, and in the lymphatic glands of practically all cases of sleeping sickness which have been critically examined by competent observers. This undoubtedly is good prima facie evidence in favor of the trypanosome being the cause of sleeping sickness, but we must recollect that at one time similar evidence could have been adduced in favor of filaria perstans. After all, it is only evidence of concurrence. Indeed, we know that some of the lower animals are the subjects of non-pathogenic or feebly pathogenic trypanosoma infections, as, for example, trypanosoma lewisi in rats and trypanosoma brucei in the large game of Africa. It might very well be that sleeping sickness depends on some altogether different germ and that the trypanosoma found in this disease is merely an accidental concurrence. Very frequent, it is true, but after all, only accidental and not pathogenic. And this idea was strengthened by the discovery that a very large proportion of the apparently healthy population of Uganda, 30%, harbor the parasite. 
On the other hand, it might be said that these 30% are in the earlier stages of the disease, and that by and by they too will succumb to sleeping sickness, as so many of their compatriots have already done. Still, this must not be assumed. Evidence was sought for in experimental inoculations of animals, monkeys particularly. Bruce infected many of these animals with trypanosomes, and the monkeys sickened and died. But in one instance only has the small cell infiltration, pathognomonic of sleeping sickness, been found in their brains or elsewhere. Experimental evidence, therefore, so valuable in the settling of such questions, has in this matter, to say the least of it, been far from conclusive. A very plausible explanation of this general failure to produce meningoencephalitis in the lower animals by Trypanosoma gambiense inoculations has been suggested. In the lower animals, this form of trypanosomiasis usually runs a rapid course, terminating fatally before the lesion, so characteristic of sleeping sickness, has had time to develop. There may be some truth in this, for sleeping sickness is usually a very chronic disease, and in the only recorded case of meningoencephalitis in the monkey, the trypanosoma infection that led up to the disease ran a chronic course over one year. While these observations and investigations were in progress in Uganda, a very striking piece of evidence greatly in favor of the trypanosoma nature of sleeping sickness turned up in England. The lady to whom I have already referred as the subject of a trypanosoma infection contracted on the upper Congo remained under observation in London and elsewhere. Her symptoms persisted. The parasites, although occasionally absent from the peripheral circulation, could generally be found. In October 1903, she became completely bedridden. Symptoms highly suggestive of sleeping sickness developed, ran a rapid course, and she died on November 26th. Careful histological examination of her tissues was made by Dr. Mott, and the presence of the characteristic small-cell perivascular infiltration of brain and other tissues was definitely ascertained. The evidence afforded by this case, in conjunction with the other facts already ascertained, is almost conclusive for the trypanosoma being the cause of sleeping sickness. It is not absolutely so, however, for it is just possible that this lady was the subject of two concurrent infections, namely trypanosomiasis and that of what may be the still unascertained germ of sleeping sickness. Should other similar examples of trypanosomiasis terminating in unquestionable sleeping sickness occur in Europeans, and should experimenters succeed in producing the small-cell perivascular infiltration by infecting some of the lower animals, preferably anthropoid apes, with cultivations of trypanosomes, and further, should the endemic prevalence of trypanosomiasis and sleeping sickness on more extended investigation be found to correspond exactly, then, but not till then, although we may consider the trypanosome origin of sleeping sickness as highly probable, may we regard it as absolutely proved. In dealing with newly discovered parasites and associated pathological conditions, our experience with filaria perstans should serve as a warning against precipitancy in drawing conclusions from the mere fact of coincidence. 
Moreover, what we already know about some of the African trypanosomes should also make us hesitate in definitely committing ourselves to a trypanosome cause of sleeping sickness. In many districts of Africa, what is known as fly disease is common. If in these districts, horses, dogs, sheep, in fact any domestic mammal be bitten by the fly, the tsetse fly, the bitten animal surely sickens and dies. Bruce has shown that the cause of death is a trypanosome, trypanosoma brucei, very similar to that of human trypanosomiasis. The tsetse fly, acting as intermediary, carries the trypanosome from one mammal to another. But as a disease so deadly would by its very deadliness kill off all domestic mammals, and as a matter of fact, and for this very reason, there are no domestic mammals in the fly districts, it follows that there must be some source other than domestic animals from which the tsetse fly obtains its trypanosomes. This source, Bruce has shown to be, the wild game of the country, antelopes and so forth. These animals somehow, although not immune from trypanosoma infection, are proof against the pathogenic properties of the parasite, and so live on with the parasite in their blood, a permanent source of infection to each other and to any other mammal entering the fly districts they frequent. This has been proved experimentally, and the results of experiments are corroborated by the long-known fact that when, by European occupation of the fly districts, the wild game of the country has been driven back or exterminated, fly disease no longer occurs among the domestic animals of the settlers. Now it may be that as regards Trypanosoma gambiense, the negro of the endemic areas of this parasite has acquired an immunity similar to that of the antelopes in regard to Trypanosoma brucei. That is to say, that in the matter of Trypanosomiasis, the African stands to the exotic European much in the same relationship that the wild game of his country stands to the exotic domestic mammal. The native man and beast have acquired immunity either from early infection or from inheritance, whereas the exotic man and beast have not. There are several instances of a similar phenomenon in pathology. For example, the pyroplasma infection of cattle known as Texas fever. As a clinical fact, we know that the African does not react to trypanosoma infection in the same way as the European does. At all events, he does not usually do so in the early stages of the infection. The febrile disturbance, so prominent a feature in the European, is often, if not generally wanting, in the African. An important contribution toward the solution of this and other problems in connection with trypanosomiasis has been made recently by two American observers, McNeil and Novi. They have taught us how to cultivate these protozoa outside the human body. Among other things, they have shown that as with bacterial diagnosis, the diagnostic indications supplied by cultivation of suspected blood are far more reliable than those supplied by microscopic examination alone. They have shown that in the blood of certain species of birds subject to trypanosoma infection, individual birds may often, even after prolonged microscopical examination, appear to be free from trypanosome infection, but yet, when the blood of these same individual birds is suitably cultivated, they are found to be infected. It is also known that the blood of animals apparently microscopically free from trypanosomiasis 
when injected into other and appropriate animals, may give rise to microscopically recognizable trypanosomiasis, a fact often made use of in diagnosis in experimental pathology. I do not know, however, that the methods suggested by these observers have been used in the diagnosis of human trypanosomiasis. As already stated, Bruce has shown that about 30% of the apparently healthy natives in the sleeping sickness districts of Uganda harbor the trypanosomes in their blood. It would be interesting to know whether the presence of the trypanosome could be shown by animal inoculation or by McNeil and Novy's cultural methods to exist in the balance of the population. In the case of Trypanosoma gambiense, infection of man, the blood is often, nay generally, so scantily stocked with the parasite that the organism may be hard, often impossible, to find with the microscope. But might not the more searching methods I have alluded to prove successful and show that practically all the natives of particular parts of Africa, like the big game of the country, harbor trypanosomes? Should this prove the case, then the trypanosome as a cause of sleeping sickness may have to be put out of court, just as Valeria perstans has been. Some other cause for the disease will then have to be sought for. We cannot be too cautious about adopting decided views on so fundamental a matter as the etiology of a disease. Everything depends on this, diagnosis, prevention, treatment. Many times we are compelled to act on conjecture or on a mere balancing of probabilities, but wherever it is possible to attain certainty, no effort that might enable us to arrive at this should be considered too great or too costly. I consider that by systematic cultivation and injection of the blood of the natives of a sleeping sickness area, by the injection of anthropoid apes with cultures of Trypanosoma gambiense, and by systematic microscopic and cultural examination of the blood of natives outside the endemic area, we could attain absolute assurance as to whether the trypanosome is or is not the cause of sleeping sickness. And I consider that these researches should at once be taken in hand by the governments of those countries which this terrible disease is depopulating. However it may be as regards the relationship of the trypanosoma to the negro and to sleeping sickness, there can be no question as to the importance of this parasite to the European in tropical Africa. It is of practical as well as of scientific interest, therefore, to endeavor to ascertain the details of its life history, and more especially to determine the way in which it is acquired. Thanks to the work of Bruce on the corresponding trypanosoma of fly disease, locally known as Nagana, the carrier and mode of infection in human trypanosomiasis suggested themselves almost immediately on the discovery of the parasite. Naturally, suspicion fell on the tsetse flies. Of these, there are seven species, all peculiar to Africa. Glossina morsitans, Bruce proved to be the transmitting agency in the fly disease of domestic animals. It would now appear that Glossina palpalis fulfills the same role as regards human trypanosomiasis. The latter insect is very common in Uganda, on the Congo, and wherever sleeping sickness and trypanosomiasis have been met with hitherto. It affects the wooded and jungly banks of lakes and streams, rarely if ever being found at a distance from water or in open country. 
whether glossina palpalis be the only intermediary for the trypanosome or whether it acts passively and simply as a mechanical carrier of the parasite on its blood-fouled jaws or whether the trypanosome undergoes some sexual or other necessary evolutional development in the tissues of the fly analogous to those undergone by the malarial parasite in the mosquito have not as yet been ascertained most likely the role of the fly is something more than a mechanical one for if it were not so how comes it that we meet with trypanosomiasis only in the fly district and not also where other blood-sucking insects occur this is a point urgently calling for solution there are yet other and highly practical points demanding careful investigation for example can an infected tsetse fly transmit its trypanosomes to its young and if so through how many generations and again are there other mammals besides man which under natural conditions harbor trypanosoma gambiense and so serve as foci of infection the bearing of these considerations on prophylaxis is evident brumpt who travelled lately through parts of the sleeping sickness area of the congo basin has brought forward a striking piece of evidence in favour of the trypanosoma etiology of sleeping sickness and of the bearing of the distribution of glossina palpalis in the distribution of the disease he says speaking of sleeping sickness in a given village it attacks more particularly those whose occupations take them to the rivers or springs the fishermen the boatmen the slaves who go to fetch water etc one also notices that it is limited to the banks of rivers of streams or of shady springs one example which was communicated to me by the catholic fathers is most typical at banamia close to coquiaville there is a mission of trappist fathers situated about twenty minutes walk from the banks of the congo several years ago there was a settlement of lolo fishermen some three thousand in number on the bank of the river in nineteen o two barely three hundred survived all the others had died of sleeping sickness close to the mission there is a village of agriculturalists these natives rarely go to the river and among them strange to say sleeping sickness is almost unknown examples of this kind could easily be multiplied at mapaku there is another mission installed at some distance from the river but within the endemic district the children of the mission who come from the decimated villages no longer go fishing but become agriculturalists and rarely go to the river among them the disease has almost entirely disappeared i fancy some of my hearers may be thinking i waste time in speaking at such length on diseases and conditions to which this continent is a stranger but i would ask are you quite sure that these or similar diseases do not occur in america until recently the fly disease of cattle was believed to be peculiar to africa we know now that the sura of india and the philippines and the mal de caderas of south america are also fly diseases almost identical in cause and course with that of africa if this be so as regards the trypanosoma diseases of the domestic mammals may there not be a similar and corresponding trypanosoma disease of the african man and that somewhere among the wild tribes of the orinoco or amazon such a condition occurs and as in africa the advance of civilization has brought about a mingling of formerly isolated tribes with corresponding interchange of formerly narrowly restricted disease germs 
so it may be when the time comes for civilization to agitate these tribes of the american tropical wilderness that similar extensions of at present limited diseases will occur and among these a trypanosoma disease perhaps sleeping sickness itself end of chapter five